This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. So I would say the first time I experienced symptoms, I was uh, 13 or 14. Say hello to Carolyn Riley, writer, law student, excellent human extraordinaire. And then in my senior year of high school, I had my period for three months, like literally spotting every day for three months. And I was fatigued and I was really like sick feeling all the time. And so I went For most of her life, she has dealt with a mystery. The mystery was unfortunately coming from inside her own body, a mysterious, very intense pain that plagued her ever since she got her period as a teenager. This is going to sound really sort of comical, but the best way I can describe it is this feeling like they were like hermit crabs pinching me, like this awful sort of prickly, needly feeling, usually in the middle of the month, but it really popped up whenever. And I never really could figure out what it was. And then I would all, sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night with a really sharp, like stabbing pain. She went to the doctor a lot. No one could figure out what it was, but it was definitely related to her uterus in some way. And nobody could figure out what it was. Everybody said, maybe it's cysts. You know, maybe it's just one doctor said I had really active ovaries, which in retrospect sounds so not what was going on. Doctors told her over and over that the pain was just part of having a period. When you have a uterus, pain is just a fact of life. So it sucks, but grin and bear it. It's something that we just sort of have to suck up and everybody deals with it. And and I think that's sort of the mindset that I was in at the time. Carolyn tried different birth controls. She tried painkillers. The mysterious pain was frightening and bad, but she could deal with it. Until a year ago, when she started law school. I would drive to school in the morning and it was an hour and a half sometimes in traffic, two hours, and I could not hold my pee. I was literally like the feeling of having to pee. I would get lightheaded and nauseous and feel like I was going to pass out from the pain of it. And when I did get my period, my cramps were so, so mind-numbing that I would take a 1,000 milligrams of extra strength Tylenol, and I just remember sitting in class, in my property law class, trying to understand what was going on, and just sweating profusely one minute and having the worst chills the next and feeling, again, like I was just going to hit the deck. The pain was all-consuming, but that's just part of having a period, right? But again, in my head the whole time, I'm like, I just have bad periods. My period's always been screwed up. And I got really, really worried one night when I was talking to my mom about it. And I said, I said, no, my, my pelvis hurts when, when you press on it. Just try. And she pressed on my stomach right below my belly button. And I yelped and doubled over in pain. And I was like, what is going on? And I just remember going to bed that night crying because I was terrified of of. of what this pain was, because I was like, this seems like it's all coming to a head and I haven't gotten any answers thus far, so where do I go from here? After that night where the pain was so bad it kept her up crying, Carolyn went to a new gynecologist who said something she had never heard before. Carolyn might have a little bit of endometriosis. And I did some research on endometriosis, and I think that's when I started to get a little scared because, you know, when you read about endometriosis, everybody says it's chronic, you have it your whole life. I think the thing that scared me the most, even though I don't really know what the future holds, and I'm not one of these people that thinks really a lot about having a family or having children, it can cause infertility, and that terrified me. Endometriosis is a condition that you're born with. It affects your uterus. When you're born, you have endometrial tissue and cells, and there are these cells that plant themselves in the wrong place. They plant themselves outside of your uterus, outside of your endometrial lining. Carolyn still didn't have a diagnosis, though, and the pain somehow got even worse. I felt like someone was sticking pins in me, like 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 my insides were like pin cushions and someone was just going at them. And it just never went away. Leading up to surgery, I was really, really debilitated. I couldn't leave my house. I couldn't really stand for that long. Um, I was still taking 550 milligrams of naproxen every 12 hours, which I'm sure you can imagine is not really good for your liver or your kidneys or anything. And, uh, and I basically would just sit all day 
with my heating pad on turned all the way up to the point where I remember going to the doctor and them looking at my stomach and it was covered in burn marks from the heating pad. And they were like, what? And I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't take it off. It's, it's all I, it's the only relief I get. My biggest fear going into surgery was not that it wouldn't work, but that they would find nothing because I think, you know, we are conditioned to see the pain that accompanies our reproductive health as uh, natural. And my fear was that this pain that I had been feeling was just my body saying, you're not strong enough to cope with it. You, your pain is like everybody else's pain, but you're just weak and, and, and you don't actually have endometriosis. You're just not, you're not equipped to handle this. When Carolyn came out of surgery through the haze of drugs, she desperately asked the doctor one question. Did you find anything? Oh yeah, oh yeah, said the doctor. You were covered in lesions. She finally had an answer for the mysterious pain. Where I was like, okay, like I'm not, you know, I'm not making this up. I actually do have something wrong with me. Getting this diagnosis had taken eight years. For that, for only being in pain for eight years, Carolyn is better off than some people. In North America, the average time it takes to be diagnosed with endometriosis is more than nine years. Nine years! That's especially bad because endometriosis is a disease that's progressive. The longer it's untreated, the more damage it can cause. I'm really upset that it took me eight years to be diagnosed or eight years for someone to mention this might be endometriosis when the the symptoms were there in black and white for years. And uh, it, it really makes me question the state of gynecological medicine if this is something that isn't you know, out of the gate, something that doctors are talking to patients who have bad periods or, you know, are noticing really painful bowel movements or pain with sex. There are just so many basic symptoms that I think are so common that it's, it's, it's blasphemy that doctors aren't addressing this much sooner. The whole eight years, she thought maybe it was just all in her head. It was hard to trust her own lived experience. It was hard to trust herself. So I think it was sort of a two-stage acceptance process where the first stage was this relief and validation that I, I knew I had not made this up and I knew that I, I was comforted in the fact that I knew what was going on with my body. And then on top of it came this, okay, this is, this is a lifelong disease. This is something I am potentially going to cope with for the rest of my life. Pain like this shouldn't have to be a mystery. Endometriosis is rare, but not that rare. The National Institute of Health says that an estimated 10% of women of reproductive age have endometriosis. In the United States, that's 5 million women. You have to ask, what role does gender play in the lack of understanding and treatment here? I had gone to the doctor a number of times over the years saying, what's wrong with me? Like, why am I in so much pain? Why, you know, why do I have a pain here? And I always had ultrasounds and nobody brought it up to me until I was 22. It's important to say here that gender is not defined by biology, that there are women with uteruses and women without uteruses, and that transgender people specifically have faced and still face major disparities in healthcare treatment because of discrimination inside and outside the healthcare system that defines women as having to have a uterus. So the big question here is this. Why does it take an average of nine years for anyone with a uterus, regardless of gender identity, to be diagnosed with endometriosis? Why is such a basic part of our bodies such a medical mystery? Yeah, I mean, I think out of the gate, the first issue is the stigmatization of menstruation and reproductive health, period. I mean, I was mortified at having to talk to my professors and say, I have endometriosis or, you know, I mean, some of my really lovely classmates even were like, what is that? And they, they asked me and they wanted to hear about it. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, this is TMI. And, and one of my good girlfriends uh, snapped me out of it. She was like, don't say that. It's not TMI. It's your health and it's normal. And, you know, all like so many of us get periods. It's fine. Carolyn's story is still ongoing. The first surgery didn't work. The doctor burned off all the lesions, but they came back. After two months, she was in debilitating pain again. And I went online and I found hundreds of women in this online community called Nancy's Nook. And then they have other splinter groups that are like, I'm part of the Boston group for endometriosis on Facebook, but they have them all over the country. 
of women who had had the exact same experience as me. They had had cauterization surgery and it didn't work. A more modern, effective surgery involves removing all of the endometriosis, cutting it out rather than just burning off the surface. But there are fewer doctors who do that kind of surgery. Basically, they make their living off of fixing the cautery surgeries that other doctors do. And it's much more common to come across a doctor who does cautery or who does some sort of laser or ablation surgery. So Carolyn is waiting for a second surgery in January. This time she'll be heading up from Boston to Maine because the doctor who does the surgery lives there. She's really hopeful about her new doctor. He seems really good. He seems transparent and open, says Carolyn. And he believes what she says about her body. That seems like it should be basic, but it's not. I'm sure that this is true of a lot of chronic illnesses, but I think that there has to be some element to it that is unique to reproductive health and female pain, where doctors look at these patients and they say, you're just, you're overreacting, you know, you're not in that much pain. And I, I, I read from women, all on, the women that I talk to online, going through doctors, they, one woman actually said she has like, actually I've heard more than one woman say, she has like PTSD from going through so many doctors telling her you're making this up. And I think that too speaks to sort of a neglect for women's health. While everyone experiences pain in one way or another, how doctors treat their pain is not equal. This isn't just one story of one random woman who had a bad experience with a doctor. There are some sinister patterns of gender bias in the treatment of pain. This is something that writer Maya Dusenberry has been researching. Maya is hard at work at a book called Doing Harm, the truth about how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick. It's due out this spring. Hi, I'm Maya Dusenberry. I'm an editor at Feministing, and I'm writing a book about gender bias in the U.S. medical system. Tell me a little bit about your book, Maya. I know I've read some about it, but what's the, what's the elevator pitch? So my book is called Doing Harm, um, and it's about how women's health has been um, neglected in the U.S. medical system. Um, and it's sort of looking at two dynamics, uh, one that I'm calling the knowledge gap and one that I'm calling the trust gap. Um, and so the knowledge gap is kind of covering uh, the way that women's health, um, you know, conditions that disproportionately affect us and also sort of um, sex and gender-based differences in symptoms or drug responses or risk factors for the same disease um, have kind of been ignored. And the result is that we just don't know as much about women's health compared to men's health. Um, and I'm looking at how that's sort of mutually reinforcing, reinforced with this trust gap um, where, um, as in many realms, women's voices um, are not taken as seriously. Their uh, reports of their own reality is often questioned and um, they're kind of not tr treated as reliable reporters of their symptoms. And so does this book look at cisgender women, transgender women, all women? What's the definition of women here? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, um, it is looking at both sex and gender bias. So <laughs> sort of covering um, cisgender women uh, when it comes to um, you know, the, the lack of kind of research on, on female assigned bodies, um, but then also on this sort of uh, doctor-provider relationship level. I'm also looking at kind of gender stereotypes that, uh, that affect, um, you know, all women, cis, trans, um, anybody who... Uh, is, is read as female. Let's talk about heart attacks. This is something that you reported on for the magazine uh, Pacific Standard. And 
for me, it was a real wake up call reading your article about this, that that is part of this book that you're writing. Tell me about heart attacks and the way that gender bias plays into how we think about and treat heart attacks. Yeah, the, the heart attack story was a real wake up call to me as well. Um, the problem has sort of been that heart disease has been stereotyped as a sort of man's disease. And, and the reason for that is that um, men tend to develop it earlier than women do. Um, and so when we started becoming very concerned about people um, rising rates of heart, heart disease, it was you know middle-aged men who were dying prematurely from heart attacks that we were very focused on. And so that kind of entrenched this idea that there was, that, that younger women, at least until menopause, just didn't didn't get heart disease, um, which is not true. I mean, it, it is true that they are at relatively less um, risk compared to men, but obviously, you know, they they do get it. Um, and in fact, it's the it's the number. I mean, it's the number one <laughs> killer of women in this country, and has been for a very long time. And since nineteen. 84, actually more women have died each year in absolute numbers um, from heart disease and cardiovascular diseases than men have. Um, and yet because of this stereotype, there's sort of this um, initial kind of tendency to um, not take women as seriously when they, um, you know, report chest pain or other symptoms. Um, and the other Part of it is that because of this stereotype, a lot of our research has been focused on um, men's heart disease, and um, and so what a lot of what we do know about it has been derived for, from studies, clinical studies, in which it's it's mostly men, um, and so one of the consequences of that is that women actually have a broader range of um, symptoms. Um, on average, you know, they, most people have chest pain, but women are more likely to have quote-unquote atypical symptoms um, that might not be recognized and are more likely to be missed. Um, but even when uh, a man and a woman both are reporting, you know, the very classic symptoms of a heart attack of chest pain, um, there's lots of research that shows that women are taken less seriously. You know, it takes longer for them to um, get the testing and diagnosing testing and interventions that could be um, life-saving. Um, you know, we have this stereotype that men are expected to be um, really stoic in the face of pain, you know, keep the, the stuff, stiff upper lip, uh, while women are, quote-unquote, kind of permitted to express their pain more. Um, and of course, I think that's very true, that there that there are those really, um, in some cases, very strong cultural masculinity norms that, that put that pressure on men. But um, it kind of leads to this interesting thing where somehow women are being judged against <laughs> men. And, and so the fact that men are assumed to be sort of under-reporting their pain means that women are automatically like over-reporting it, which just... I mean, it's not the reality at all. So in all your research, what kind of gender biases have you seen in the medical establishment that around gender and pain? As in a lot of places, I think that one of the fascinating and really infuriating things is that women seem to lose kind of no matter wh which way they go. So because there's this stereotype that women are hysterical or you know have this emotional response to pain, if they play into that stereotype um, and are, you know, very emotional or crying, you know, and, and really expressing their pain, then they'll be seen as just, oh, that, you know, that's a typical, typical hysterical woman um, and, and maybe not be taken as seriously. Um, on the other hand, though, uh, if they go, try to go the opposite route um, and be really stoic, um, and maybe even underreport their pain. And this is, women ha have told stories of chronic pain patients who have, have do done this, who have admitted that they actually won't admit how much pain they're in because 
specifically because they don't want to play into that stereotype of the hysterical women. Um, but of course, then if you're underreporting your pain, that's also not a very good <laughs> strategy if the goal is to get your pain taken seriously. And it seems like this is such a widespread phenomenon that there must be people studying it. What kind of research or studies have you read on this that um, either blew your mind or made you really think about the gender dynamics of pain in a new and different way? Yeah, well, there's a really um, kind of classic article called The Girl Who Cried Pain, and they'd started looking at them in pain and had concluded that, in general, women tend to be um, more sensitive to pain or less able to tolerate tolerate it or at least are more likely to report it. Um, and so they pointed out that, you know, given that difference, if there were any differences when it comes to pain treatment in the real world between men and women, you would think that at the very least women wouldn't receive less treatment than their male counterparts. But in fact, the opposite was true. The, they looked at various studies that had come out and overall the data showed that women who seek help are less likely than men to be taken seriously. And when they report pain, um, they're less likely to have their pain adequately treated. What's, what's your personal experience with this? What in your life is prompting you to do this research and write this book? Uh, yeah, well, I've um, written about women's health for a long time, um, mostly about uh, reproductive health and have worked on that for a long time. And I, I think part of my motivation for writing this book was just that I, I realized that I had sort of not given much thought to to how gender bias affected the rest of medicine. Um, and in part, I think that was just because I had been a uh, really pretty healthy person for, for 27 years and, and had mostly been interacting with the medical system um, when it came to, you know, routine reproductive health care, which obviously is vitally important and um, should be a huge focus. But uh, a few years ago, I developed rheumatoid arthritis and... So that kind of started me down this path of learning more about autoimmune diseases and learning more about other um, conditions that are disproportionately affect women that um, have been neglected. And having that personal experience has, has made me even more just sort of amazed by the strength of people who actually do live with chronic pain all the time, um, which I think that it's hard for people to imagine that because um, it is a really sort of unimaginable thing. And it's really amazing that, that people do it and that, um, you know, we, we have really neglected those people who are doing it. Um, well, Maya, do you see any, any hope for the future here? Do you see anything changing in the medical establishment as more people like you are talking about this? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think there's actually on the, chronic pain front, um, there was a really big report uh, a few years ago in 2011 by the Institutes of Medicine, so, you know, very prestigious. Um, that was a really pretty stark indictment of, of the medical system's treatment of pain. You know, they really concluded that, you know, we have 100 million people in this country who have are living with chronic pain, and treatment is, is really poor. There's not a lot of education in medical education about how to treat pain but I think that you know that was a sort of wake-up call that was writer and editor Maya Dusenberry her book doing harm comes out this spring from Harper one keep your eyes peeled For one case in point where medical professionals misunderstood and dismissed and diminished women's pain, just look at the history of PMS. About 80% of cisgender women in the world report having premenstrual syndromes, a diverse array of issues ranging from headaches and cramps to mood swings. The Association of Reproductive Health Professionals lists 200 symptoms for PMS. 
Personally, I haven't had a period in about five years because I have a hormonal IUD, but every month I get like phantom PMS symptoms and do things like cry four times while watching The Lion King. But for millennia, the mostly male Western medical authorities thought that PMS wasn't a real thing. Doctors thought that a wide range of emotional issues and physical pains women reported were due to an illness called hysteria. Hysteria was caused by a problematic uterus, like a uterus that would wander around the body. They linked hysteria to emotional turbulence that could lead to both severe horniness and homicidal mania. An early treatment for hysteria was vibrators, or doctors even stimulating clitorises with their hands. It wasn't until 1931 that a gynecologist, Robert T. Frank, suggested that hormonal shifts could be responsible for the recognizable pattern of behavior called premenstrual tension. But it wasn't until the 80s, the 1980s, not that long ago, that PMS became a widely discussed and accepted condition. And even then, and now, it's often used to stereotype women as unstable people who might lash out because of their uteruses, or attribute our perfectly legitimate anger and feelings to just that time of the month. As researcher C. Amanda Rittenhouse wrote in 1991, public discussions around PMS, quote, brought out old stereotypical views about women's abilities to control themselves. Yet over time, this view was changed by feminist writers who pointed out the dangers and myths behind these emerging images. These days, PMS is widely accepted as a reality for cisgender women. But here's something interesting. Some trans women who were assigned male at birth report PMS-like symptoms too. Hi, I'm Sam Riedel. I'm a freelance writer and editor. Uh, I've written for The Establishment and, of course, Bitch Media um, and the other sites like the Mary Sue and the Barnes & Noble book blog. Sam Riedel reported on this phenomena for the feminist website The Establishment. She wrote an article called, Yes, Trans Women Can Get Period Symptoms Too, where she interviewed 15 transgender women and agender and androgynous people about how they experience PMS symptoms. I asked her how she got interested in this subject. Well, I'm trans myself, um, so I, I have a personal interest in it. Um, but I wasn't really aware of anything like this happening until I talked to uh, my girlfriend, Ashley. And we were just kind of hanging out one day at her house. And she mentioned that she was about to go into the hospital for a week or two. And she was nervous about the amount of time that she was going to spend there because she said she was due for her period in a couple of days and she really wasn't looking forward to doing that in the hospital. And I was blown away because I'd never considered that trans women and, and trans feminine people who are on hormone replacement therapy or HRT, it had never occurred to me that we might experience period-like symptoms or PMS-like symptoms. Um, obviously, that menstruation was out of the question, but there was this assumption in my head that none of the other stuff could come along with it. So after talking with Ashley and hearing her describe all of her different uh, PMS-like symptoms, which are like, she gets nausea and hot flashes, dizziness, migraines, bloating, all sorts of things on a very regular, uh, roughly monthly schedule. I started looking around and talking to, to other people online and people I knew in real life, and there were some really fascinating stories of people who had had these experiences, and every one of them thought that they were the outlier and they were totally alone, and that's just not the case. It's not just Sam who's surprised by these experiences. The world of PMS among trans people is a largely unstudied and undocumented frontier. I got a little bit of pushback from people who said, oh, this is wishful thinking. This is, um, you, you just want to have a period so badly that it's like a hysterical pregnancy. And I mean, there's always going to be those people who are saying that about, about trans women and trans feminine people, regardless of their experience. But agender people, I, I talked to a, a person named Blue who they said, I, I, don't, I don't want this. This has nothing to do with my experience of my gender, but biologically there's something going on here. This is all anecdotal. 
I haven't been able to find any medical studies so far about PMS and trans people, and neither could Sam. But Sam thinks that these symptoms are probably connected to the changing hormones caused by hormone replacement therapy, which is called HRT. It was fairly difficult to nail down specific trends in this, but there is a trend towards um, PMS symptoms in general being experienced four or five, maybe six months after beginning HRT. And it's certainly not universal by any sense. Um, but then again, no effects of HRT have been found to be universal in the literature that exists. So this is a, just another wrinkle in what exactly HRT can do to a trans body that really deserves more scrutiny by the, by the medical community. It's especially important to listen to and consider these experiences because medical authorities have often taken a pretty hostile view toward trans people. A doctor's office often doesn't feel like a safe space, says Sam. There's a real trend among trans people to be extremely reticent and nervous when talking about the intricacies of their experiences with healthcare providers. Given the level of violence in unexpected places, whether that's verbal or whether that's physical, um, it, it leads to a lot of trans people not being able to talk to their doctor about something that they really need to talk to their doctor about. Just like recognizing bodily pain experienced by cisgender women, it seems like listening to experiences and documenting patterns is the first step toward understanding this part of how trans bodies work. Remember, it was not long ago, like, really, not long ago, that cisgender women were called hysterical when they reported monthly pains. And, well, it's going to sound really basic when I say this, um, and it, it might not seem as helpful as I think it is at first, but I really just want there to be more conversations. I want cis women and trans women to feel like they can come together and talk about their medical experiences and find common ground, find where they don't have common ground, and then come up with ways that we can advocate for one another on what we need. Thanks to Sam Rydell, you can read her article, Yes, Trans Women Can Get Period Symptoms at the Establishment. For the last half of this show, I have something very special to share. We're featuring a story that was produced by one of my favorite podcasts, The Heart. And that means we have an esteemed guest here. Um, so I'm Caitlin Prest. I'm the creative director of The Heart, a podcast and art project about intimacy and humanity, where we tell love stories from critical perspectives. Caitlin, I love hearing your voice because I feel like on the podcast, you're talking straight into my brain. <laughs> that makes me happy. Do strangers ever come up to you and think you're like best friends because they listen to your show? Truthfully, like, I, well, that's a very good question. I mean, like, yes and no. Like, I do think that I've been on like dates with people where they make a lot of assumptions about like how like crazy I am like around sex things and that is really weird but I did meet this woman I was like like kind of coming up on Molly like at this party in Montreal and I was like outside smoking a cigarette and this girl we randomly got into this amazing conversation about like you know, what we do with our lives and art and life. And I was like, oh, I make this show, this podcast. And she was like, oh, what's it called? And I was like, it's called The Heart. And she was like, oh, my God, like, are you Caitlin Press? And I was like, yes, I am. And but she was so cool. She was like, I know that I don't know. I don't actually know anything about your life. You know, like she's like, but I feel so close to you. But I know that I don't actually know. And I was like, oh, my God, you're so cool. But like that, that truthfully, it's happened like twice. We, we're not really that famous. Well, the heart is famous in my world. I started listening to you all the way back. Actually, back before the show was called The Heart, it was called Audio Smut, and it was hosted on Bitch's podcast feed. 
Well, I mean, I remember like back in the day, like really literally a million years ago, like when I was collaborating with Jess Grossman, who was like my first radio love and like collaborator on Audio Smut. Um, like our dream was to collaborate with Bitch in some way. And then I remember like a few years later, I guess I just kept on trying. And I think I found out that there was a podcast and I was like, oh, my God, you guys, like, can we make something for your podcast? And then we did that. They were called Short, Sca- Short Stacks. I totally remember those. That's what I first heard when I started listening to Bitch's podcast before I even worked here. Yeah. But anyway, I love what the show has become. It sounds great. I really feel like it keeps me company in my ears. So tell everyone about the story that we're going to hear. Oh, let's see. I mean, it was sort of, it was a collaboration between Anna Adlerstein, uh, the, the woman who did the interviews, me and Gina Gold, who is like an incredible storyteller and like, just like pours detail out of her mouth. Like every single thing that she says is like a complete picture of hilarity and joy and like raunchiness. And um, Anna had pitched us uh, this story about a phone sex worker Um, who had never had sex before. And like, that was sort of the beginning of the story. That was sort of like the pitch. And I was like, oh, like, that seems, you know, cool. Like, that seems funny, interesting. I'm really interested in like, hearing somebody, oh, right, because the job that she had, the phone sex job that she had was like a soft core, with a soft core phone sex line, where she had to speak only in metaphor. And like, that seemed really hilarious. Like, it was more interesting to us that she spoke in, she had to speak in metaphor, that she had to do phone sex with metaphors. Like that was more interesting to me than the fact that like she was doing phone sex and had never actually had sex before or like penetrative sex. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, whatever, I don't care about virginity. Like that's really kind of a non-issue to me. Like this idea that like a, a dick and a vagina is somehow like the definition of losing. Yeah, I don't know. Just like all of the things around that. I'm like, I don't care about that. Um, but then once we got closer to the story and sort of like started talking to Anna, started talking to Gina, um, it sort of emerged that the reason why she had never had um, like the kind of sex that she wanted to have, which is which with, with a man with a penis in her vagina, was because she had this thing that this mystery around her body that was like really confusing and it really hurt and it like she couldn't have sex. And I think for Gina, it was a little bit kind of like slightly uncomfortable because I mean she's super good at telling really funny stories about like doing sex work or her relationships but this was actually like an extremely vulnerable story that was like one that she had never really told before and uh and yeah Anna and and Gina are both total badasses. Well let's get to it. Here's a story from the heart. Just a heads up this story is about sex. And it's a lot more graphic than we usually get on propaganda. Also, there are a lot of swear words. (laughs) I think it's all awesome. But if you don't want to listen to a sexually explicit story right now, well, here's your warning. Hi, this is China Blue. Who's out there? Uh, This is Derek. The scene. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Yes. I'm going to... A Yoruba priestess named Toby is pretending to be calling in to the number 947-W-E-T-T. Now, are you ready? I am in my penthouse suite. Her best friend Gina Gold, the protagonist of this episode, is trying as hard as she can to reenact something she did more than 20 years ago. It's putting her acting skills to the test. Can you slap that nakedness? Pop it. Can you pop it? Mm. Anna, okay. our reporter extraordinaire, okay. is trying to keep things moving. They are all a little more than okay. tipsy on Shabbat wine. <laughs> I'm so good. I can't be her <laughs> It is Saturday, after all. I mean, I don't know. They're, I, you know they're base creatures. From a few special mornings such as this, our story was recorded. Our story begins in the 80s. Gina Gold is living in Boston, studying at theater school, drinking beer for breakfast every morning, and having some issues with her boyfriend, Dimitri. I really, really loved him. 
in a 23-year-old kind of way. We went on picnics and we laughed and we would go to the shopping mall a lot. We would go into North Beach Leather and get undressed and I would suck his dick in the dressing room. Up until we tried to have sex, I had the best time ever with him. Dimitri was the first person I tried to have sex with. I've never had sex in my life. I wanted to do it, but I was scared. I was convinced that my vagina wasn't normal and that it must have a special shape that doesn't allow the dick to go all the way through. There was something stopping it. Like there was a barrier. He took his dick out and his dick looked like it was 25 inches long. And I just got terrified at the thought of, I let him try, but then I freaked. And I was like, oh my God, no, wait, 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 hold on. Okay, slow down. And then he got insulted and he got up and then he left. I offered to cook dinner for him, but then I realized I didn't have any money to actually cook the dinner. So I went to the store to steal a chicken. But when I got to the store, I usually like when I would steal a chicken, I would put it in my pants because it was the 80s. But I, but, but the store was crowded that day and I realized I couldn't steal the chicken. So I was gone for a really long time. And when I got back, there was just a note that said, Dear Gina, you'd screw up a trip to hell. It really hurt my feelings. But I was gone for two hours so I could see how that looked bad. And this was before cell phones. So I couldn't call to say, you know, I'm delayed. And then how can I say that I'm stealing a chicken? I'm, I'm held up. And I don't know what I was thinking anyway, because it was raw. It's like I still had to cook it when I get back. Like, why didn't I, you know, steal a rotisserie chicken? It just was not bad planning. I was so heartbroken over Dimitri, and I was really depressed. I wanted him to know how I felt, so I wrote him a Dear John letter. Dear Dimitri, I love you. I'm really sorry about the chicken incident. However, the way that you dealt with my sexual problem was mean and selfish. And so now I'm leaving to go across the country. Go fuck yourself. I had $69 and I bought a Greyhound ticket one way with the hope that I would make it as a famous actress. And I packed up six dresses and a suitcase and I got on the bus and headed out west. When I got to California, I, I immediately got a job at Berkeley Repertory Theater um, doing telemarketing because I thought at least I'll be close to the theater. But I was upstairs, like nowhere near the theater, just selling subscriptions over the phone. And I was having trouble selling because I just was, I was, I just, my heart wasn't in it. And the supervisor complained and said, you guys aren't selling any subscriptions. You need to flirt on the phones more. And the woman next to me said, if I was going to flirt on the phone, I'd be doing phone sex. So I was like, that's it. I'm going to do phone sex. I called. I called and I said, you know, hello, I would, you know, I'm an actress. As if they give you shit. I was like, yes, I'm an actress. I've, um, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and they like cut me off immediately. They were like, yeah, okay, just come in and audition. There's a room that's divided into cubicles and it says hot California blondes. They were all black women that looked like they were from deep East Oakland. One woman was like, yeah, I got um, blonde hair and I got um, blue eyes. And they were moaning, 
one girl, she had the phone down on the floor and she was actually doing her nails and just like moaning from afar, like not really putting any thought or effort into it. I, I stumbled through the audition, but I got the job. I am in my penthouse suite with my friend Delilah. And Delilah and I like to play with each other's cotton candy with cream inside. I started out on the soft porn line. It couldn't be explicit. It You had to speak in metaphors. But what we really want to do is take your hot dog and lick all of the mustard off. It would always be awkward because as they're saying that, like, do you know, do you want me to put my dick in your ass? Then you'd have to respond, yes, I want you to park your car in the garage. Because if you slip, the supervisor would come busting in while I'm on the call. I'm right. I'm putting this in your file, Miss Prissy. I got really good at it. I have a giant garage and it's just waiting for your big black Cadillac to drive in. John, I'm going to open up my mouth big and wide and then you're going to take that hot dog and you're going to slowly slide it in the bun. Oh, I like that, Delilah. Do you like that, Derek? Tom? Oh, well, thank you, Tom. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, I, I love you too, Tom. There was that first month while I was doing phone sex where it was like crack cocaine. I was like, this is awesome. You're telling me that I'm skilled sexually. My brain is eventually going to go, you are not really having sex. These people don't really like you. You're not really sexually skilled. And when I... Finally got that on a cellular level, like, this is not real. That's when I decided to transition to stripping. If I was grinding on dick, if I was sitting on dick in a thong, there should be no way that I would be afraid to fuck. After a few years, nothing had changed. I'm 28, and I still didn't have what I really wanted, which was sexual intimacy. And I was super depressed. I felt that I was not good enough, that something's inherently wrong with me. And yes, I was able to have a good time to a point, but every time someone tried to put their dick in it I felt the wall they didn't feel the wall they said I wasn't relaxing I felt like it's not because I'm not relaxing it's because or I'm not relaxing because you don't get that there's a wall there and they felt that the wall was me and then is that person gonna not like me anymore and it's just such a crappy feeling I finally decided that I was going to go to the doctor. I said to the doctor, I think that there is a wall in my vagina. And she laughed. And I said, no, seriously, this, there's some deformity. You need to take me seriously. And she said, let's do an exam. And I said, I can't. I cannot have you put the speculum on. I cannot. No. So she said, OK, let's try putting you out. So we actually had this whole big thing where I went to uh, UCSF, got put out um, thousands of dollars. And it's just to have a, a fucking exam. I woke up and I was like, tell me about the wall. And she was like, as I said, told you, there's no wall. You are totally normal. Everything down there works. And I was shocked. She told me that. The wall was in my mind that my body had clamped 
shut, that the mind is so powerful that it can create a wall that's not there. And that because I felt fearful and apprehensive, I created a barrier that in my mind became a physical barrier. And that this condition is called vaginismus. And it doesn't have to be caused by something horrific, like, you know, a rape. It could just, it's just a feeling of not having control. It could be caused by a poor relationship with a parent. It could be caused by um, being a child and having a painful dental exam or rectal exam or just anything that you felt out of control and needed to shut down and it not necessarily sexual. So I thought, okay, so now what? With the money that I made stripping, I hired a sex therapist and a sex surrogate and they worked together. The sex therapist is to help you psychologically with any sexual problems that you're having and to navigate, to help you to have a plan as to how you're going to work with the sex surrogate. The sex surrogate is the one that actually has physical contact and ultimately may have sex with you. And all the most sex surrogates were women. I said, I don't want a woman. That's not going to help me. And she said, well, there's only one man in the Bay Area that's available. I go to Berkeley, to the guy's house. I knock on the door. He opens the door. He's this older, red-faced rednecked gentleman with a really bad Massachusetts accent, like Charlestown. And he had a Donald Trump comb over. And I was like, I don't want to fuck you. I'm sorry. I can't do it. I Maybe you have something else you can do. So he said, okay, would you be willing to get undressed? I would be willing to get undressed, but don't touch me. Don't fucking touch me. Like, don't look like you're excited about me being naked. So I got undressed. He had a big king size bed that had satin sheets and then a very New England quilt on the top. I opened up my legs, which is a very vulnerable thing to do on his bed, on that quilt. He just said, can I put the mirror in between your legs? He put the mirror in between my legs and he paced around the room. All right, Gina. Do you feel yourself in the room? Do you feel yourself naked? Do you see your legs? Do you see your vagina? Do you see your labia? Do you see a clitoris? This is my labia. This is my clitoris. This is my outer labia. This is my inner labia. This is my vulva. As I said the words, I, th- I heard this is my, like the this is my part was like, this is my body and there it is. And there's really nothing mysterious about it. I felt in control and I felt like the whole thing had been demystified. that I couldn't have sex with the sex surrogate. 
But I had been going to Bank of America across the street from the barn, which was my house for quite some time. And there was this young guy, he was short, he had glasses. And I slipped him a note while I was making a deposit and I asked him if he would like to come to my house for dinner. I had tried to make my room look like a love den and it just kind of looked like a freak show. I got this idea that I would get like a, a fishing net and I hung the net from the ceiling. Then I had painted the floor gold with this toxic paint. So I made him some vegetarian shit out of the Moosewood cookbook. I said, listen, I don't mean to put you in an awkward position, but I've never had sex before. I'm 28. I want to have sex right now. No pressure. <laughs> and he was like, okay. I think he just said, okay. We drank a 40 ounce, watched the, some episodes of Twin Peaks, and then we were ready to fuck. As he got on top of me, I remember looking up at the net and I just thought, okay, this is stupid. I shouldn't have cooked the cheddar cheese with rice and phyllo dough, that was dumb. And this, this, this song selection is dumb, and this is dumb. My delivery when I told him I had never had sex before, that was bad, like I didn't, I wasn't smooth. I was like, you know, I, can we have sex? And by the way, I've never had sex, so you're my first one, okay, let's go. Like, it is not, I was like, this, I want to do over. But then I was like, fuck it, we're doing this shit. So turn, turn up the public enemy. The guy got on top of me and he was about to stick his dick in and I was like, this is a real dick. Oh my God, this is the real deal. So I start breathing in and out. And I was like, this is very scary, breathe in. This is totally terrifying, breathe out. This is really scary, breathe in. His dick went in a little further. This is very scary, breathe out. Oh my God, I think I'm gonna die. Breathe in. Oh my God, it's probably not even in at all. Breathe out until a couple of minutes had passed and I was breathing in and out. And I said, I'm ready for you to go in. He's like, I've been in for two minutes now. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm the bomb. I don't even feel it. Like, and then I was like, can you go deeper? Can you slam it? Like, I, I was so impressed with myself. And I felt like I could have gone bigger and harder. Like, it, it was a good, it was a good feeling. Not so much for him, I think. I don't think he called me back. If you're out there on Facebook, Peter, I really apologize for putting you in that position. It wasn't right. But thank you for what you did. It was a good service. My sex life got so much better, so much more interesting. I was so excited and I just couldn't wait to explore. Oh my God, I can fuck whoever I want. I this I can do all kinds of crazy kinky foreplay and it's gonna lead to actual sex. I felt so free. Caitlin, that story is so beautiful and funny, but it's also really tricky to report. How do you feel listening back to it? Like, I really believe in the work that we're doing. And I really believe that by sharing your vulnerability, you're making the world a better place and you're like helping other people feel uh, at home in the world, you know? And like, I, I believe in that so deeply that I think, um, you know, like, I feel like the... Um, the scariness of going there or asking people to go there feels in service of something good and in service of something that is trying to, you know, as cheesy as it is, to make the world a better place, quote unquote, you know. And um, I think like that always provides me solace in scary moments.
Today we've heard stories about all different kinds of pain. But there's something that runs through all of these different stories. Women feeling like they won't be believed. Like their doctors and friends and family will think that this pain in their body is actually all in their head. While medical cures for endometriosis and rheumatoid arthritis and vaginismus might be a long way off, there's definitely something we can do right now. Believing women. That's a prescription we can all write. Listening to women about our own bodies. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.